0: This week we're going to try to give an answer to some of the questions or the the doubts that people have about Christianity uh, this week's or this uh, today's question is one that both Christians and non-Christians struggle with from time to time, especially when bad things are happening. the question is where in the world is God? It's a valid question. Uh, when someone looks up at the sky and says God, where are you how many times in the history of the world has God given an immediate answer? well, I could think of a few from the Old Testament. One in particular, it was Elijah. He was up on top of Mount Carmel with hundreds of prophets of Baal and they both had built an altar to their own God with a bull on it. And, and whosoever God consumed the sacrifice of that bull was going to be the, the, the true God. And so the prophets of Baal went first and they cried out all day long. And of course, nothing happened because, well, Baal is a false god. And then it was Elijah's turn. He simply lifted his eyes to heaven, he prayed, and immediately God sent his answer down in the form of fire that totally consumed that bull. And we hear about that and we think, yeah, why can't God do that in my life to give me assurance that he's with me even through tough times? But maybe something to recognize is that, um, that oftentimes God revealing his power like that in an immediate way didn't result in the, the mass conversion we would have expected. It really never did in the Old Testament. But still, where is God, especially when we're suffering? And maybe we should point out that uh, we're not talking about if, if you get fired from a job because you're being lazy or if you get a DUI for, for drunk driving. Uh, we have no right to say to God, God, where were you? How could you let this happen to me? No, sometimes life is a mess because we are. But what about when the suffering comes through really no fault of our own. Is it still okay to ask the question, where are you, God? Well, just read the Psalms, and you'll hear the psalmists say over and over in many different ways uh, that that same question. Uh, King David cried out in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Finally, at some point in all of our lives, there's gonna be pain, there's going to be uh, suffering, there's gonna be a death, whether it's happening to us or it's happening to someone that we love. But also recognize that if that's causing us to cry out to God and say, where are you, then it is accomplishing a purpose. We may never have bothered with God uh, if it weren't for that suffering that was happening. But let's answer the question. In order to answer the question, we need an understanding and we also need to know where to look for the answer. So first, the understanding. We, We need to understand what our greatest need in life is. Our greatest need is not a great career, it's not a a, a happy family, it's not having a certain amount of money or anything like that. No, our, our greatest need, you know deep down, it has to do with the fact that I can't even live up to my own standard for life, let alone God's infinitely higher standard. It has to do with the fact that I know that there are consequences for my sin, eternal ones. Finally, that need, every other need, pales in comparison to that one great need of having having peace with God. And then secondly, where to look for the answer? Where is God? Well, look at Jesus, the one with all the power hanging on a cross. Where is God when I needed him? (laughs) There he is, bleeding and suffering and dying, being nailed to a cross to satisfy our greatest need. You have peace with God? You you have a beautiful home in heaven waiting for you. Your sins are really forgiven. Now we can say with the Apostle Paul, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is working all things. He loves you and he's working all things, even the bad things in your life, for your good. I I have this dangerous prayer that I kind of hope God doesn't actually answer. It, It goes like this, Lord, if If you need to allow me to have a horrible life here on on this earth for this speck of time I'm here in order to keep me close to you, then so be it. It's not that I want the suffering, but we recognize that God even uses those difficult things in life for our good. This week, we're taking time to answer some of the questions or objections that people have when it comes to Christianity. Uh, today, I want to give an answer to those who, who say something along the lines of, you know what, I don't need to go to church to have a relationship with God. Uh, very often, you'll hear people talk about personal faith. Um, and it is true, as individual Christians, we have, each have our own faith. You know, I can't believe for you, uh, your faith is your faith and my faith is, is my faith. Uh, But at the same time, it's interesting when scripture talks about a relationship with God, it's far more often a a communal thing. In in other words, uh, scripture talks about the church's relationship with God, not just as individuals. Just think of all the one another passages that you find in the New Testament. There are nearly 60 of them. Uh, Just think of how each individual Christian is just one of many parts that make up the body of Christ. In other words, to address A a relationship with God, we need to address our relationship with God's people. Uh, God says in his word uh, through the writer to the Hebrews, he says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why does God want us to gather together? Uh, He's not giving us a a hoop that we need to jump through. He's saying it because we need it, right? Um, he, He wants us to gather together to be encouraged and to encourage. So, First, to be encouraged, and maybe you're thinking, you know what, I really don't need any encouragement, but sorry to say, that would be very short-sighted. Here's why. Because the way, what we confess as Christians is so different than what the world thinks. Think of what we confess as Christians. We confess that we're helpless on our own. Uh, The world says, no, you're the the one who's responsible for your success in life. Uh, We confess that, that we're sinful and don't deserve anything. Well, the world says that, no, people are basically good and we're getting better. We confess that we're going to heaven only through what Jesus has done. And the world thinks, no, if you just try hard, God will accept you. We confess that Jesus is God and that the triune God of the Bible is the only God. And the world says now, Jesus was just one of many great prophets and and there are many paths to God. In other words, uh, what you surround yourself with will eventually wear off on you. There's a, a German proverb that says, you can't play with coal and not get dirty. And so that's one of the reasons that God wants us, it tells us that we need each other to be encouraged by one another. The other reason is to, uh, to encourage others. And now maybe you're thinking, well, I, when I go to church, I don't even talk to anyone. Well, first go ahead and talk to someone. But, but secondly, never underestimate what an encouragement you are just by being there at church. I think of uh, uh, very early on in my ministry when, when um, I had a, a member whose wife passed away, tragically, at an early age, she died from cancer. And the couple of weeks afterwards, he would, he would come into church after the bell rang, so I'd already be up front. And then he would leave while I was speaking the blessing. And so I never got a chance to catch up with him and I wanted to. And so I just decided to stop by his house and I'll never forget what he told me. One of the first things he said was, Pastor, I cannot tell you how much I just appreciate being in church with other people. I know I don't talk to them. I know I don't give them a chance to talk to me right now, but I can't tell you how encouraging it is just being there with them. And so I would encourage you, never underestimate um, how much of an encouragement you are just by being there, even if you don't talk to anyone. So let's not give up meeting together. This week, we're looking at some questions that people have when it comes to the Bible and about Christianity. Uh, Today's is kind of a big one. It's very simply, can I trust the Bible? Now, there are so many different ways to answer that question with a yes answer. uh, But today, I'm just going to focus on a few. Uh, First of all, there are many authors, but one voice. (laughs) There are over 40 authors uh, that wrote the Bible Uh, over the course of 1,500 years. And yet, when you read Scripture, you realize that there is a single voice. And there's a reason for that. Uh, The the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. The the voice that you hear is God's. The fact that there is absolute consistency when it comes to, when it comes to who we are and the message of uh, why we're here and, and our natural condition and our salvation. Well, that's just, that's a miracle of God. Another thing is that uh, the Bible is historically and archeologically impeccable. In all the ways that the Bible can be tested in these areas, uh, it, it passes with flying colors. Uh, even if somebody says that they find something that, um, that doesn't line up with what we found in archeology span or something like that, uh, just give it more time and, and the Bible is always eventually verified. Uh, In addition to that, we have literally dozens of authors, many of whom who weren't Christian, writing histories that included Jesus and what he did and who he was within 150 years of Jesus' life. In in fact, we've got some non-Christian historians like the the Roman Tacitus or or, or the Jewish uh, Josephus who wrote within a generation of Jesus' life. Uh, Neither of them had pro-Christian agendas. They simply recorded the facts, the same facts that you find in the Bible. Then there's the reliability of the copies. Uh, very often, people will criticize the Bible by saying, well, we can't know if we have the original because uh, they're copies of copies of copies. Well, first, we need to recognize that's the same with any ancient document. But secondly, we know that the, the scribes were incredibly careful in copying down the scriptures. They took it very seriously. In fact, they, they were known as the Sopherim, which is a word that means counters. Now, why were they called counters? It's because they would copy down a scroll and then when they got to the end of it, they would count up every letter and if it didn't add up to the right amount of letters, they would burn the scroll. Why would they burn it? Well, because that's how careful they wanted to be in preserving what the original manuscript had to say. In addition to that, when you look at the variants, uh, that's that's what the mistakes in copying are called. When you look at the variant readings, it's easy to tell what the original said in probably 95% of the cases. It'd be a little bit like if I was dictating a letter and let's say there were 50 of you and 49 of you recorded one word and one of you recorded another word, which word did I probably say? Well, it was definitely the one that 49 recorded. In addition to that, there is not a single variant, even the ones that we're not really sure which it is, there's not a single variant that affects any teaching of Scripture. Kind of one neat illustration about, uh, about the, the reliability of the copies comes from uh, the, the Qumran caves. Um, back in 1946, uh, many scrolls were found, but, but, but especially the Isaiah scroll was found in, in the Qumran caves. The, the, the story is that a, the, a shepherd, a Bedouin shepherd boy, was looking for his goat in the caves and he was throwing rocks into the caves and, and thinking that if he heard the bleeding of the goat, he would know which cave the goat was in, but instead he heard a crack. It was the cracking of the jars containing these scrolls. Um, As they researched the area or or searched the area, it ended up that over 12 caves, there were over 900 manuscripts found. Now, previous to that find, the oldest manuscript of Isaiah that we had, the complete Isaiah, was from about 900 A.D. That's like 1600 years after the original was written by Isaiah. Uh, Now, with this find, Uh, The the, the manuscript, the Isaiah scroll, dated from about the first century B.C. in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, meaning that was a thousand year difference. And yet, do you know what the most incredible thing about the find was? There was really nothing substantially different between the two manuscripts because the copies we have are certainly reliable. Uh, Not to mention we have quite a number of manuscripts. Uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, we have about 10 copies of that. Uh, Plato's Tetralogies, we have less than 10 copies and yet nobody questions whether Plato or or Julius Caesar ever existed. Uh, We have over 20,000 manuscripts of New Testament documents that talk about who Jesus is and what he did more manuscripts means more certainty and then finally you've got you've got prophecy fulfillment and for me this is this is a big one Have you ever heard of Uh, someone named Nostradamus. He was a French astrologer in the 16th century who kind of made a name for himself being able to predict the future. Uh, And I've I've read some of his predictions before. Of the hundreds of predictions he made, he came close on maybe five or like a handful. Um, And that's if you read them very generously. Kind of like if you're reading the newspaper and you read the horoscope and it says, Geminis are going to have a bright day. And then you walk outside and you're a Gemini. You see the sun and you go, ah! It got me, right? Um, If you're very generous, you give him maybe a handful. Okay, he got close on a handful out of hundreds and he's known as predicting the future. Well, we have something way better in the Old Testament. God made over 300 prophecies about who Jesus was and what he would do and Jesus fulfilled every single one. Uh, That is just incredible. Now, some people say, well, Jesus knew what the prophecies were and he just fulfilled them. Well, that, that argument actually doesn't hold water because... Um, The Bible said that that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. How much control over where you you were born did you have? Uh, The Bible says that Jesus was going to heal people and and give sight to the blind. Are you able to do those things? No. Uh, There's a story about a a, a rabbi who who absolutely hated Jesus, um, so much so that that he criticized a a, a Jewish convert who was reading a Hebrew translation of the Greek New Testament. What the student did was he simply gave the rabbi his copy of that New Testament. So the rabbi behind closed doors ended up staying up till three in the morning, reading the New Testament, and and the Holy Spirit worked on his heart. So much so that that he concluded um, that he had already found over 200 prophecies that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, if you doubt it, um, just read it. Uh, Read it and see for yourself how it answers every need you have. The fact that it gives you a Savior who loves you, who died for you, who is with you, and who has a home in heaven prepared for you. The Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So read it and let the Holy Spirit convince you. This week we're trying to give some perspective, some answers to objections that people maybe have or questions they have about Christianity. Uh, some people wonder, why in the world would God need to become man? Uh, and ultimately, uh, God tells us the motivation in the Bible. He, he says it's because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And in the Gospel of John, it says, the word that is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I mean, isn't that mind blowing? Uh, you, have, you have the almighty, all-powerful Son of God becoming weak. Um, you've, got, you've got God himself becoming soft as a baby. You've got the one who is absolutely everywhere at every time becoming tiny. The, the one who is immortal becoming killable. Why? Well, it's because he loves us. And Jesus needed to be 100% God and 100% man. Uh, And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, wait, one plus one equals one. That's terrible math. Uh, Absolutely, but it's great theology. It's a miracle. And, And again, Jesus needed to be both God and man. Well, why did he need to be man? Well, so that he could be our substitute, so that he could be born under the law and live a perfect life and then die. Jesus needed to be man. Uh, The the Bible says in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. And so in order for Jesus to redeem humans, he needed to be 100% human. And yet we also needed him to be 100% God. Uh, Because God says in the Bible, no person can redeem the life of another or offer God a sacrifice for them. Uh, Let me... Use an illustration. Let's say that you live a perfect life and I live a sinful life and we both die and we're standing before God. And because you're perfect, you're making this offer. You're very generous. You say, you know what, God? I would like Dave to go to heaven for me and I'll go ahead and suffer hell for him. But I want you to give him credit for my perfection. What would God say? He would say, absolutely not, (laughs) right? Your perfection counts for you. No person can redeem the life of another. And so we needed Jesus to be 100% God so that his life would have infinite value. And that's exactly what scripture scripture says for us. It says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I know I've probably told you this this story before, but I just think it illustrates the point so well. It's a story about um, Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was, um, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. She lived in the early 1900s. She was, by her own admission, not a very attractive woman, not a looker. Um, And and she was uh, a writer of mystery novels. In fact, Dorothy wrote a series of 11 novels all about the same guy, Sir Peter Whimsey. Sir Whimsey was a British aristocrat and he went around solving crime. The series was very popular in England. Well, by about the, the, the sixth novel, um, she started getting some fan mail and, and, and her admirers were saying, you know what? We love the series. We love Sir Whimsy. He's so noble. He's so brave. But you know what? We kind of feel sorry for him. He kind of seems consumed by his work. And so Dorothy read her first five novels and she, she went, you know what? They're right. He's lonely. And, and so in the sixth novel, Uh, Dorothy wrote a new character into the story. Her name was Harriet Vane. Now, Harriet Vane was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. She was not a very attractive woman and she wrote mystery novels. And she teamed up with Lord Whimsy and they went around London solving crime. And by the eighth novel, they fell in love and got married. And the the series ended with them living happily ever after. (laughs) It's kind of obvious what happened there, right? Dorothy L. Sayers looked at this universe that she had created and she saw of all the characters she loved, there was one she loved most, Sir Whimsy, and she saw that he just wasn't whole. Now, she could have just left it be. The novels were selling. She could have scrapped it and started all over with a new series. But instead, she wrote herself into the story in order to make Sir Whimsy whole. It's a metaphor for Christmas, isn't it? That God looked out at this universe that he had created and he saw of all the things he loved, there's one he loved most, you, and he saw that you weren't whole. And now he could have just left you be. He could have scrapped you and started over, but instead he wrote himself into the story. Literally, the word became flesh. He wrote himself into the story of your life to make you whole. And now the Bible tells us that because Jesus is 100% man, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he wants to help us. Are you, have you felt betrayed by someone? So did he. Are you broke? So was he. Are you lonely? So was he. Uh, do you bust your hump and no one seems to appreciate it? So did he. Are, are you overcome by temptation? So was he. Uh, are you staring death in the face? So did he. No matter what you may be going through, Jesus understands it because he's un- he's experienced it. No matter what it is, take it to Christ. He he can he can relate to you because he is human, and he can help you because he's God. That's why God became man. This week we're dealing with some questions that people have or challenges they have um, about Christianity. And today's challenge um, I've heard more times than I'd like to admit. All the church cares about is money. Now, I certainly hope that's not the case for every church. Well, quite frankly, I hope that's the case. That's not the case for any church. Uh, when I it was in my first year of parish ministry, when I was at a church, um, I wanted to get to know the congregation. So I set up these home visits where I would come for an hour and just get to know people. And after kind of the initial round of home visits, um, I decided I wanted to keep following up on the people who hadn't signed up or maybe who hadn't been to church and so I was making phone calls, trying to set those up and I'll always remember a gentleman that I called up and, and I introduced myself as the new pastor but before I could go on, he said, okay, Reverend, I know what you want. I'll send my check in the mail for my offering. And I said, no, please don't. God loves a cheerful giver. That man, he missed the point. God's not after his wallet. God's after his heart. So now the question, why do we get this impression of churches? Could it be, maybe at times anyway, that we care too much about money? It's interesting that when you read the Gospel of Matthew, uh, over 21% of Jesus' discourse has to do with money. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I guess the question is, where's your heart? In, In that same section, he went on to say this, He said no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, Jesus warned about the danger of loving money and serving money because of the risk that it poses to our spiritual health. Uh, The apostle Paul said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself that's evil, that's a gift from God, but it's the love of it and what it can buy. Uh, Martin Luther once said that money must be the least of all God's gifts because he even gives it to fools. In other words, that's a way of saying that we put way too much stock in money when there are so many other blessings that are so much more important in life. I always think that we've got the proper perspective on money when we're the youngest. Okay, so I'm thinking of uh, when grandma and grandpa would give like one of my four-year-olds $5 for her birthday. And I would say to them, now, how much of that do you want to give to Jesus? What would they say at that age? They'd say all of it. And I'd be in the awkward position of going, oh, you don't have to give all of it. <laughs> but why are they willing to give all of it? It's because they implicitly trust me to provide everything they need and so much more. And and we can do the same with God, right? But then how quickly, we lose that perspective. Um, I just think of one of my daughters, um, we, we kind of talk about in our house that we're going to start with 10% um, giving back to the Lord of our financial blessings. And so that's kind of the, the, the ground rule and they can go from there. But um, one of my daughters, she made $15 babysitting. And uh, so I said to her, well, how much of that are you going to give to Jesus? And she said, well, a dollar. And I said, oh, I thought you were giving um, 10%? And she said, I am. Um, I rounded. Okay, she needs to go back to math class to learn which way you're supposed to round that, right? But finally, why do we give offerings if God doesn't need them? Well, it's out of love for what he's done for us. Uh, Jesus told, or uh, I'm sorry, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when he was at a friend's house. He was at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, if you remember those names. And during dinner, Mary got up and she took this jar of perfume, an incredibly expensive jar of perfume. She, she poured it all over Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. That jar of perfume was worth a year's wages. Think of spending anything, you know, spending a year's wages on anything and then it just being gone. Why would she do that? It's because she wanted to show Jesus what he was worth to her. It's because she wanted to thank him for the salvation that he would win for her. And finally, that's why we want to give offerings too, out of love for the one who broke his body open on the cross and poured out his blood for our forgiveness. Now we have something truly valuable a Savior. And it takes letting go of our love of fleeting money in order to hold on to our Savior who gives us so much more than money can buy. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Mike. Thanks for listening today. This is actually something else I think you'd really enjoy and it's our latest podcast from my friend C.L. Whiteside. Uh, I could gush about C.L. and his gifts and the message he's bringing to the Time of Grace community but instead I'm going to let C.L. tell you in his own words what his podcast is all about. Something that's been on my mind has been when did this cancel culture begin and people start saying this person is done or they're dead to me? And what makes cancel culture intriguing is that if you aren't angry, like the majority of people are also angry, and you're not saying I'm done listening to them, or I actually forgive them, you get canceled too. So you can't forgive somebody and want to move on and not want to dwell on it your entire life. Join me, CL White Tide, on my podcast, The Non-Microwave Truth. Search The Non-Microwave Truth wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.